following message is by a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Morning, everyone. Um, well, it's no secret that my favorite Sundays are the ones when I don't have to preach, and so I'm very grateful to be here in God's house and not be wearing the headset. Um, we do have a guest speaker. This past week, I was in uh, Philadelphia meeting with my uh, college friends who are all pastors, and so um, we did our annual gathering, and I'll share more details about that uh, when I'm back on the pulpit next week, uh, but it was a pretty awesome time. Um, a lot of crying together, laughing together, uh, confessing together, and so it was just a really, a really powerful time in the Lord. Um, but this morning, we have the privilege of having Alan Kim uh, come to share with us. And so Alan has been um, doing an internship through his seminary, Knox College, uh, here at ICC. And so we've been meeting together every other week for uh, roughly about a year's time. And so I had an opportunity to really get to know Alan well. And um, very thankful for what God has been doing in his life, uh, shaping him and preparing him for uh, a place of uh, pastoral ministry, and um, one of the things I really liked and appreciated about Alan in the uh, year that we've been spending together is um, he's just um, such a straight shooter and uh, just kind of says things as he, as it is. You just when I meet with Alan, I don't feel like I have to like try to um, read between the lines, you know. But he he just says it exactly what what I think he's feeling, and so because of that honesty, we're able to just explore a lot of different things together in a very uh, uh, free and a comfortable way, I would say. And so, and uh, I know he has a real passion for God, a passion for the Word, and um, and so I, I realize too he's a man of detail, you know. So even as we're going through the internship, I can't just throw something out there like and uh, round it out, you know. But he, I feel like if I say anything in a sloppy way, he's going to sort of call me out on it. And so he's a very detail-oriented guy too. I realize um, right now, in addition to completing his studies at Knox. Um, he is, does uh, have a marketplace job. He's actually a financial analyst, and so he's doing that at this time as well. He's married to Diana, who many of you know, and also together they have three children, Evangeline, and then we also met Kyle and Drew, as we discover very adventurous and energetic twins. And so um, let's just welcome him in the Lord as he comes up to share God's word with us. Okay, let's Thank you, Pastor Steve, for uh, those kind and humbling words. Um, I think as a pastor, you should know better than to lie at church (laughs) on a Sunday service. Uh, (laughs) Actually, in one of our meetings, I told Pastor Steve that I don't take words of encouragement well. Uh, I get really awkward and say awkward things, so I guess calling him a liar would qualify as that. (laughs) Um, just a little bit uh, more about myself. We moved back about a year and a half from Florida, and I actually was born and raised here in Chicago. And um, I know many of you from like 20 years ago, because I started going to church uh, at Lakeview during my high school years. And it was there that I became a Christian. 
And when I first became a Christian, when I was young in my faith, I always thought of uh, what it would be like had I walked with Jesus during his time on earth. And I thought it would be so awesome if I were able to see him feed the crowd of 5,000 with just five loaves of bread and two fish. I also thought it would be awesome to see him just calm the storm with just a word and rebuking it. But I think most of all, I would have loved to see his genuine love and how he had loved the people who were very unlovable. And I thought to myself, man, had I been witness to these things, I would never struggle. I would never do anything dishonest for financial gain, but I would give generously because I would know that God will provide for me in everything. Um, No matter what storms in life were to come, I would know that Jesus could calm the storms and I can always find shelter in him. And even if everything went wrong, I would be able to know that I could ultimately find comfort in Jesus' love. Uh, Today's scripture uh, is about Thomas, and he was a disciple, and he walked with Jesus about 2,000 years ago, and he was witness to all these things. And this passage takes place two days after uh, the crucifixion of Christ, and just after uh, Jesus had appeared to the other disciples, and he had revealed his hands and his pierced side to them. So uh, if you're able, can you please stand with me for uh, today's passage in John chapter 20, 24 through 28. The word of God is this. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, And place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my side into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would open our minds so that we would understand your word. Open our eyes so that we may see who we are and who you are. And soften our hearts so that we may respond according to your will. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Now we see in the story that Thomas was not with the disciples when Jesus had first appeared. So when Thomas had returned, the disciples had told him, hey, we have seen the risen one. However, Thomas did not believe despite their testimony. In fact, he didn't just not believe. He said, I will never believe. He said that unless he touches and sees the nail marks and pierce side, he will not believe. But if you... Understand the story, that nickname that Thomas got, Doubting Thomas, it's actually not accurate. Because doubt is about uncertainty. There was no uncertainty in Thomas. Because we see in John 20, 25, Thomas has said, 
Unless I see the hands in the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. There's no uncertainty there. He's certain that he does not believe. So what caused Thomas to be in such a state of unbelief? I mean, this is the same guy in John chapter eleven sixteen that was so convicted about who Jesus was that he was willing to die for him and with him. But I think we can actually identify with what Thomas was going through. Because the person he had just spent three years of his life had just died unexpectedly. I mean, it's a pretty great trauma for that to happen. And anyone who has loved unexpectedly lost someone that they love can really identify with that. But there's more to Jesus' death than just losing a loved one. All throughout his ministry, people called him the Messiah and the Christ. And these are the Hebrew and Greek words for the anointed one. And the Jews at the time anticipated this Messiah and that this person, the Messiah, would fulfill the promises of God that were found in 2 Samuel 7, known as the Davidic Covenant. And in this covenant... God makes a series of promises to David, such as he will make a great name for him. He will give land to the Israelites, and he will allow them to defeat their enemies so that they may have peace in their land. The second part of the covenant was to be fulfilled through the offspring of David. Now, God promised a dynasty of kings from David's offspring that would reign forever. However, if you've read through 2 Kings and 1 Kings, you see that all the kings that come after David were not worthy of reigning eternally. And in fact, their sin was so bad that God had to make good on his promise in verse 14. And he disciplined them by exiling them from the land and cutting off temporarily the succession of kings. So Israel had no king for 500 years. There's this era of silence. And now Jesus comes along, and everyone thinks that he's the guy who's going to fulfill those promises. So now you can imagine the trauma that Thomas felt when Jesus was captured, crucified, and killed after putting all of his hope in him. Now despite not believing uh, we see that in John twenty twenty six that eight days later, Jesus' disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. When I read this passage, I think the real question is, why was Thomas still with them after he said he didn't believe? Well, the story in John chapter 6 comes to mind. Jesus had many followers with him, and Jesus had given this really tough teaching Everyone is having a hard time understanding, even the disciples. And because of this hard teaching, many of them left. They abandoned Jesus. And then Jesus turned to the twelve and asked them, Are you going to leave too? Well, Peter responded by saying, Lord, who, who shall we go to? You are the one that has eternal life. Now, despite not believing, Thomas knew that there was nowhere else to go. 
because there is nothing or no one that can deliver upon the promises that God had made. You see, many of the Jews expected that the Messiah would overthrow the Roman Empire and establish their kingdom, just like how David slayed Goliath. However, Jesus had other ideas. And in Romans 3.23, 6.23, we see that, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, Jesus didn't come to overthrow the Roman Empire. He came to slay the giants known as sin and death. You know, I find that the unhappiest Christians that I meet in my life are the ones who are in denial and or despair. Here's what I mean by denial. These are the Ten Commandments right here. And when you see them, and when most people see them, they see a list of things that they ought to do and ought not to do. And that's definitely true. But that's not the whole truth. You see, when Jesus came back, uh, when Jesus came and he spoke in Matthew 5, 21 to 22, he said that you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So if you murder someone, you're liable to judgment. But also if you hate someone, you hate your brother, you're also liable to the same judgment as well. See, what Jesus is doing is he's internalizing the law. It's no longer just about our actions, but it's also about our hearts and our minds, what we're thinking and what we desire. In uh, Jeremiah 17.10, God says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And just in the verse before, God says in Jeremiah 17.9 that the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Now, according to the standards of God, we don't stand a chance. Think of it this way. There once was a man who died and stood before the gates of heaven. He stood face to face with God. And God asked him, why should I let you in heaven? The man kind of smiled and puffed out his chest and said, well, it's because I believe that Jesus died for me. God responded, oh, really? What does that mean to you? Well, the man, the man smiled even more because now was his opportunity to show off how much he knew. He said, well, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, you said that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin, and his righteousness became my righteousness. That's double imputation. What that means, God, is that you took my sin, put it on Jesus, and you took his righteousness and put it on me, and you credited me his righteousness his righteousness, and you punished him for my sin. Well, God responded, if you truly believe that Jesus died for sinners, why do you not tell everyone about me? Is it because you don't care about them and don't care if they get saved? If you truly believe that I sacrificed my son for you, why do you sin against me so often? Is it because you hate me? 
The man's smile turned upside down, and he was frowning, and his puffed-out chest turned into slumped shoulders. Then God said, Did I not also say in James 2.26 that faith apart from works is dead? You know, the standard of God is perfection. And in Matthew 5.48, he says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In order to be saved, God demands that your works, including your faith, must be perfect. See, Ephesians 2.8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. There's a New Testament scholar, uh, Peter O'Brien, uh, who kind of interprets it this way. If God's grace is the ground of salvation, then faith is the means by which it is appropriated. And faith itself cannot be a meritorious work. It is the response which receives what has already been done for us in Christ. You can't earn your salvation by believing unless your belief is perfect. Your faith must be a byproduct of God's salvation. Now imagine that you are the most respected art critic in history. You know everything there is to know about art. And everyone knows who you are in the art world, and they respect you. Your evaluations of art has made many artists rich, and it has also destroyed the career of many artists as well. Now imagine someone hands you this drawing to be evaluated. Now for those, those of you who are uh, listening on audio, I feel like I have to explain, uh, describe this to you. You see, there's this bald man with glasses standing in the middle. Looks like he's balancing a chalkboard eraser on his head. His torso and neck look like a bottle of motor oil. There are three roosters, and for whatever reason, one of them has four legs. But they don't even really look like roosters. They look like two balloons attached together by static electricity. And then there's like a muddy puddle... I think, but there's legs, so it's got to be something else. And then there's like this neon green cow on the right side that looks more like a milk carton. And this, if you were to receive this as an art critic, and you had any integrity at all, you would think that this is garbage, right? I mean, what's, what's impressive about this drawing at all? Well, many of us view God as this art critic. So what we do is we try to lower our standards or try to make this better than what it really is. But you can't fool the art critic. He knows what he's talking about. He knows his art. And his standards are the highest of high. But God isn't just an art critic. He is also our Father. See, when Jesus came to put our sins upon himself and put righteousness on us, we were adopted into God's family. In Galatians 4, 4 through 5, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons.
You see, we are made perfect and precious because of what Jesus has done. Now, if you guys are just listening, we went back to the picture. And the only difference in this picture is at the top it says, To Daddy. And so God doesn't look at us in an objective way of what this, uh, our critic will look at it. But rather, he sees it and sees us as his children. And because of what Christ has done, we are perfectly acceptable to him. And not only are we acceptable, but we are precious. So for those of you that are in despair, I just want you to know that as children of God, there is nothing you can do to lose your salvation or his love. Psalm 139, 1 through 4, David says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You see, we, we serve a we have a sovereign God. He knows everything. He not only knows everything in history, he knows the past, the present, and the future, which means he knows our past sins, our present sins, and our future sins. He also knows what we're thinking, what our desires are, and he knows even what we do, even in secret. And even though he knows all that, Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his love for us in this. That while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Now let's read uh, John 20.26-28. 20, Eight days later, Jesus' disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Here's what I see. I see someone who doesn't believe. And I see someone who is waiting on the Lord. And I see that Jesus comes and sanctifies him by restoring his belief. Read with me uh, James chapter 4, 6 through 8. It says, But God gives more grace. Therefore, Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, and resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. You know, I just want to urge you as a fellow brother in Christ to not live in denial. You see, you may be able to fool other people, and you may even be able to fool yourself, but you can't fool God. He knows everything. And don't live in despair either because I want you to understand that 
as a child of God, nothing can separate you from the Father's love. Not even your own sin. Not even anything that you do. And even when you don't believe this truth, I want you to understand and remember the story of Thomas. Don't leave. Because God has promised that when you draw near to him, that he will draw near to you. Spend some time in prayer. In verses uh, uh, 30 and 31, uh, they say that the miracles of Jesus were written down so that we may believe He is the Christ. You know, I think it's very important that we stay in the Word because we're surrounded by messages that are counter to what God says. And so often we fall into that trap. You know, we're not called to read the word to earn God's favor. We're called to read the word because it's good for us. And God wants what's good for us. He wants to, to nurture our faith. And I also believe that when we pray, God does miracles. When we pray in his will, God does miracles. I also believe that God does miracles in all of his children's lives. And so often we're so busy that we don't sit down and reflect on the goodness of God in our lives. So at this time, you know, let's just spend some time just praying and reflecting upon the miracles that God has done in our lives. I think one of the greatest miracles in our lives is how he has changed hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, ones that love him. Even though our love is not perfect, God perfectly loves us so that we can love him more.